Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. And welcome to my podcast, Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, today, I'm sitting in for Raoul Pal. so if you were expecting uh, a tall Brit with a British accent sitting here, then, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, I, you know, I'd probably butcher that up, even if I tried, given that, you know, I'm, I'm based in the southernmost part of Germany in Bavaria, so that the, the British accent doesn't come easy. Um, but I'm happy to do it. Uh, my name is Moritz Siebert. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of uh, Exponential Age, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you, Joey, a repeat guest, I think, uh, to the show. Uh, Joey, you are the co-CIO of Pantera Capital. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so how are the markets uh, treating you? I mean, what a quarter has it been, right? How are you guys faring? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like the most challenging environment I've seen uh, from a price action standpoint in crypto. Um, I mean, I, I started, you know, investing in Bitcoin back in 2011. Obviously, the drawdown in 2011, 2012 was, was worse than this in percentage terms. Uh, but in terms of like total capital and, you know, kind of the scale... Uh, it's just, this is like much more intense than that, um, at least at least for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm not sure if you have any Ethereum on your book, but um, nevertheless, I'd like to speak to you about it. You know, we have that merge upcoming, at least, you know, that's what the market is expecting. I have a feeling. I mean, there's no, you know, clear like date where, you know, the Ethereum Foundation would say, oh, it's going to happen at the you know, last business day in August or anything like that. But, you know, people say it's probably in the end of August, end of October type of period. Um, but so every time I speak to clients, every time I speak to friends, you know, Ethereum comes up as kind of like the main position, like, you know, Bitcoin's here, but Ethereum is now here. Everybody wants to be super long Ethereum. So it, it gets me thinking into like, you know, is this, how much group think is there going on? Because they're telling me they have the trade on, they have a long position on in expectation of the merch. And because the merch is going to be doing something miraculous and fabulous to the price and, you know, Ether is going to, you know, be making new highs immediately. And that's just, you know, markets don't really work like that. When you have this big consensus trade in the market, it, um, it I'm not saying it's, you know, it needs to go the other way, but it could just sit there and then, you know, have that fully priced in. So I'm not sure if this is, you know, what type of feedback do you get? I mean, is that a trade that you're interested in or would you say, no, I'm, I'm fading that, fading the news and, you know, I'm not really keen to, you know, to play the merge as an event-driven trade. I guess what I'd say is I'm long-term, I'm very, very bullish on, on Ethereum. Um, and, but I would, I would say like, to your point about consensus trades, like, you know, sometimes you get like this trade on Wall Street, like everyone's doing, right? Like a few years ago, I remember there was like this Argentinian bond trade that everyone was doing and, you know, the trade blew up and, you know, some people lost many, many hundreds of millions of dollars in it. Um, and if you look at this trade, 
I mean, it has less blow up risk. Like it's, it's not like the Argentinian bond market, but I think you can lose money on it, right? Like if you buy a ton of ETH, expecting that the merge is going to happen soon, that trade can go wrong a couple of ways, right? One is the merge can get delayed. And on this, like, I remember Ethereum 1.0 launched. And I remember like, if you look at, if you look at the way people announce stuff um, from a developer standpoint, when people say something's going to ship around, you know, X month, it never ships that month. When people finally, you know, put like a deadline on it and say like, it's going to ship like August 23rd or at whatever block height, you know, whatever block number is, is the equivalent of August 23rd at midnight, you know, then like it actually happens. Right. And so far that, that hasn't happened yet for the merge. So my view is that like, until we have that hard deadline, it's just going to continue to get delayed. And with, with the first version of Ethereum, there was actually this uh, prediction market. I forget the name of it, that I, that I bet on when it would launch. I got very good odds on it because no one believed it would actually launch. But I was like, no, like this time they actually put a deadline. So it's actually going to ship at that date. Um, and here, I think the, the, mer the merge may just continue to get, you know, continue to get delayed a bit. Um, I do think it's going to ship, you know, relatively soon. But, you know, whether it's August or September, October, November, December, or January, you know, is, is, is anybody's guess. Uh, so I think that's the first way it can go wrong. And the second way it can go wrong is just everyone's already bought, right? Like I haven't, I, I've met a lot of people who, to your point, say like, you know, I put on this trade because the merge is going to happen. Um, I haven't met anyone who's been like, I'm waiting to put this trade on um, because the merge is going to happen. Um, and so right now, actually, we're we're very heavy in Bitcoin relative to ETH. Um, we don't do that very often. Uh, but I think this time, like it, it actually makes sense. Um, and, you know, my view is that like there's going to be a ton of positive price action right around when the merge happens and, and after, and maybe even after we get like a final date that's announced. But I think until then, you know, if BTC maybe just goes down or it just stays flat and kind of chops around here. Like I don't really see the bull case for why like if BTC can double on a relative basis pre-merge. The, the people who are believers have already bought and the people who don't believe won't won't believe that it makes sense until they see it in practice. Uh, it's kind of my my take on that trade. Another another way it could go wrong, and maybe that has a super small probability, is you know for there to be a glitch. I mean, it's the largest smart contract platform on earth. You know that runs all the time, and we've never had it kind of like you know a life experiment moving from proof of work to proof of stake. So I'm sure they've tested it you know many and many times, and but you, you just never know. I mean, this is software. You know, some stuff could go could go wrong. And then, you know, lastly, I think, and this is just my perception, when I speak to people, a lot of people think that, oh, the merge is going to, you know, create a better Ethereum, like, you know, a faster, higher velocity, higher throughput, more cost efficient type of Ethereum. Long term, like you say, you know, there are many reasons to be bullish on Ethereum because, you know, with sharding and, you know, other type of upgrades, it will become faster. But what we're doing with the merge is, moving from proof of work to proof of stake that that is i mean there's some other things but that's the big thing you know so there is a a risk of being disappointed if you're holding a long position that oh well you know not that much has really changed i mean it's a little bit more esg friendly a little bit greener because you know it doesn't you know use all that electricity but that's kind of it for the time being yeah i i think like the the hard fork after the merge i, I forget what they call it they used to call it like you know phase 1.5 or something. I don't, I don't know. It's, it, the, the naming scheme has changed so many times, but basically there's, it's a hard fork that adds in a bunch of stuff that makes it really easy to do like scalable, um, 
layer two kind of roll-up solutions. And like that, I think is actually a bigger event than the merge. It'll happen after the merge. I don't know how long after, but that's what actually enables all the scalability stuff that a lot of people associate with the merge. I think it's just because people haven't followed it. Because if you, if you roll back the clock two or three years ago, ETH 2.0, when it launched, was supposed to have like sharding and all this stuff. And now the scope has gotten narrowed, which I think is a smart thing to do from a software engineering standpoint. But to your point, you know, I, do, I don't think all the public perception has has quite like understood that. Uh, and so, yeah, I think an actually bigger event is what comes after the merge where you, know, you, you enable this stuff that enables a lot more scalability. I mean, let's try to look forward to that point after the merge when let's say sharding is in place and you really have a higher throughput, higher velocity, more efficient Ethereum blockchain. I mean, it is the largest smart contract platform today. It has the largest developer community, you know. Um, so why would it not? I mean, is there a case to be made that Ethereum could actually increase its moat around all the the other smart contract platforms like you know, Avalanche, Solana, Polkadot, you know, all the other layer ones? I mean, how many how many programmable blockchains do you need? And what's the what's the you know the role of say you know Polkadot? Uh, three years from today, you know, if and when Ethereum really can do it all and it, you know, has everybody behind it. There's a few different trade-offs um, that you can make, you know, when, when creating blockchains and there's a few different ways it can play out. So one way it plays out is like, you know, ETH2 is just this main base layer. All these other scalable chains, like basically create layer twos to bridge to Ethereum. And, and you might say, okay, well, why not just like build on Ethereum you know, itself or, or build on a layer two on Ethereum. Um, and there's some good reasons, right? Like if you look at Solana, to take that as an example, the architecture of it is really suitable to things that require really high throughput and really low cost, like video games. Um, if you look at a lot of the gaming use cases, I could totally see them succeeding on, on Solana. Uh, versus like Ethereum, it may always be 10 times more expensive and 10 times slower than, than you know, say Solana. But that's perfectly fine for a financial use case, right? Like it doesn't matter to me if I'm doing a, a million dollar trade, whether my trade costs a tenth of a penny or one hundredth of a penny. I mean, it might if I'm doing like some forex thing, uh, but for most use cases, you know, the security, um, it being reliable and having you know 100% uptime matters much more. Versus for a game, you know, if I have like 0.05% downtime and there's like 10 minutes, you know, once a month or whatever frequency it is where my game's offline, like. It's not great, but it's not the end of the world. And it's a trade-off that I would totally make as a game developer because my users will pay such low fees that they won't even notice like that they're paying fees. So I think there's use cases like that where you, where you see some value. The other area is like, if you look at Polkadot's model, it's it's sort of interesting in the sense that like their model is every large application is going to want their own basically blockchain that can interact with the main kind of layer one. And you might say, okay, why would you want that? Um, there's some interesting reasons like, you know, if you imagine an application that has like tens of millions of users someday, you know, hopefully, hopefully we get there. You're, there's definitely like custom changes you would probably want to make to the chain itself versus just purely building straight on Ethereum or something like that. But I don't think you need like ten, 10 layer ones, right? Like there's these two to maybe four different types of trade-offs, um, and there's maybe one or two that I haven't you know thought of, um, or that no one's even thought of yet. But, but I don't, I don't perceive there being like ten or twenty or that sort of thing. Yeah, neither do I. I. I use the analogy, maybe rightly or wrongly, it's kind of like, you know, how many car brands do you need to to have in the world? I mean, clearly there's probably, you know, more than 50 or even more than that. I don't know. They all take you from A to B. Uh, the reason there are so many brands is because of, you know, 
consumer preferences and you know i like one model and you like another model but it is something that is is physical that you know has a design that you can drive that you can touch that you can you know look at and and, and enjoy whereas code you know uh whether it's solana or Polkadot, i mean it's yeah it's kind of difficult to fall in love with code unless you're maybe the the weirder computer scientist, but you know, it, it, I I would say it's easier to fall in love with a Porsche than it is to fall in love with a piece of code. So that's what I'm saying. Like there there probably must be you know just a handful of you know programmable blockchains that will you know persist, and you know stuff will just run on those, and all the other ones need to give way. It, it might be more like the uh, like the operating system or you know databases, right? Like operating system wise there's hundreds of stuff out there, but really there's basically three in practice. It's like, you know, OS 10, um, Windows and Linux, right? And, there, and there's a handful of other things. Those are the main ones. And then if you look at like databases, you know, you have like Oracle databases, you have SQL databases and you have a few other main categories. And then they're sure, like if you look, there are hundreds of other types that have like, you know, sub 5% market share, right? Like Oracle, SQL, NoSQL and one or two others, you know, they, they have like 95% share of the, the database market and it's good enough for 95% of use cases, right? I think that's probably how the layer one landscape shakes out. There's always going to be some like, you know, niche person who wants to run like Gen 2 Linux and there's probably going to be a blockchain that like, you know, is a similar kind of niche community. But, you know, most people are going to run Windows, you know, OS X or, or Linux, you know, that sort of thing. Hey, let's shift gears a little and talk about Tether because, you know, Tether kind of like looms large. Um, it, it's no longer as large as it used to be a couple of weeks slash month ago. But this morning I picked up an article in the Wall Street Journal saying that, you know, the short Tether trade is, well, it never really stopped, but it's kind of like back and it's bigger than it's ever been. Um, and so the report went on to say that, you know, the short trade is actually on by traditional hedge funds. So it's not like, you know, digital asset hedge funds putting the short trade on, but, you know, traditional hedge funds putting that trade on with digital asset hedge funds being the other side of that trade and, you know, acting as a counterparty. Um, so, you know, this is this is an interesting trade. It hasn't worked yet. I guess it'll, well, I don't want to say, I, I think that there's a higher chance for the trade to never work than for it to actually work, but obviously it could be extremely asymmetric type of, you know, risk return um, payout. So uh, what's your view on that? I mean, and obviously, you know, I guess if, if Tether breaks and, you know, I, I don't think it can really go to zero, you know, the dilution of the cash pool will probably stop at some point. But there's so much systemic, you know, interdependencies with Tether because derivatives are priced in Tether. I mean, well, what actually happens when the, the numerator goes to zero? Does the, you know, denominator trade at infinity? So, um, it, it, you know, it's definitely going to be fireworks. So... How do you view that space? The way the way I would think about it, like quantitatively, is like, you know, I, I bet a lot of money that Tether could pretty quickly fulfill, if everyone redeemed, they could probably fulfill 80 cents on the dollar very quickly. I, I would bet like very high confidence that on at least that, you know, and, that, and I'd probably bet pretty low confidence that they could fulfill more than 97 cents very quickly, right? Like that's kind of my confidence band. Um, and, and so I agree that I, I think it's very unlikely Tether like blows up in any meaningful way. And I think, I think odds are it's 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 probably closer, much closer to the ninety-seven than the than the eighty, right? That's just like my confidence interval. If you forced me to bet against you, I would. Um, and I think from the hedge fund standpoint, though, I, I actually don't think it's a very good trade on either side, right? 
because like neither side has actual like good information about it. Um, and on the person who's providing the exposure to the traditional hedge funds, you know, they're earning some like interest rate on an annualized basis. It's probably not that great of like a sharp return. Like if you adjust it for like the, the risk that tethers at say 90 cents on the dollar, which is like non-negligible. And then for the hedge fund, it's like not that great a return. Um, and from the standpoint of you're paying a pretty hefty annualized interest rate and the base case is actually that it stays at a dollar, right? Like I think like um, the odds that it just continues to trade, you know, 99 to cents to a dollar is, is very high. Yeah, let's let's use your confidence interval that you just mentioned there, you know, between 80 and say 97 cents, right? I mean, then obviously timing matters because let's just assume that it costs 10% to borrow tether per year, right? Or let's say let's say it, it costs 12% to do that. So we have like 1% per month. I mean, I'm not sure if that's the right number, but it's it's kind of like I guess it's ballpark correct in, in, in the right zip code. So, you know, if you can, if tether goes to 97 from you know one dollar, it goes to 97 cents, you know, that's a difference of three. So it's kind of like, let's say that's 3%. Okay, fine. So you need to get the timing right within like a quarter, right? Because you're paying 1% a month. So if you're, you know, if, if your timing's off just by a little bit, the asymmetry goes away. It, it can only come back if, you know, Tether really goes from $1 to 80 cents, you know, in which case you have a 20 cent profit. And if that happens within a quarter, you've paid 3%. For, so you, you make a net 17. I mean, the math is kind of like, you know, butchered up here a little bit, but, you know, the ballpark is right. So that is, that is what I'm, I'm not really interested in that, in that trade. I mean, the asymmetry would really be there if Tether were to go to zero, like, you know, a Luna or Terra type of scenario, then, you know, you don't have to worry about the timing so much. You can have a trade on for, let's say, a year or two, pay 12 to 24%, and you would still be exposed to a massively lopsided, you know, payout. But, Given the fact that you know, let's say it's it's floored at eighty, it's actually not a good trade. I mean, I I, I wouldn't do it, and like you say, I also wouldn't take the other side um, because you know it is a non-zero probability that it actually does go there or or slightly below eighty, say, and you know it's so with, with, with the managers that we have money with, we're actually you know checking that, and you know we we're not so keen on on anybody having that trade on to be honest. You do have like convex risk that it goes far below eighty in like an edge case scenario where somehow like somehow capital controls get enacted surrounding tether, right? Like, like say for some reason, you know, like their, their addresses or stuff gets somehow they get put on like the OFAC list or something, right? Like, like then it goes way down. Um, and, and that's a scenario where it's actually backed, right? But like the government just decides they hate it so much that they're going to, you know, literally send it to zero. And like, yeah, it's probably only a couple percent chance risk that actually happens. Um, but on the hedge fund side, that's not enough to make your trade good. And on the lender side, like, you know, you're, you're earning like maybe 12%, 20% annualized, whatever it is. And there's 2% risk, like it literally blows up and you lose all your money. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's like a trade that's, um, it's, it's like a very like edgy trade, I guess. Like it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a convex trade. It's, it's just like convex in the wrong direction, I guess. I mean, I, I, you know, I hope that, you know, given that Tether is uh, so large, so dominant in the space that they're improving their collateral position. So they're becoming more cash-like and cash-equivalent-like and, you know, less commercial paper and, you know, less less credit risk, essentially, in their book. And um, and that they get regular audits um, 
and then I guess you know you can you can have the trust. Look, I mean, it has been attacked before, you know, so far. I mean, they're, 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 it's actually battle-proven, right? I mean, they've survived those attacks and they've, you know, made billions and billions of dollars in, in, in liquidations in a very short period of time. So that actually, I'd say, would make me confident that they're capable of doing that. So another reason why I'm not so keen on the trade. Anyway, let's, I mean, Tether is always going to be there. I mean, what... The, the fact that you are interested in the early stage stuff, um, what do you see there? I mean, a lot of these things have come down. NFTs, I mean, I'm not sure what type of sector classifications you're using, Web3 and Metaverse and gaming. And what excites you these days? Uh, what's on your radar screen? And what are you bullish on for the next 12, 24 months? Definitely very bullish on like layer twos. Um, you know, Arbitrum, Starkware, uh, Optimism just launched their token. I, I think like the layer ones and layer twos are kind of converging to the same thing long run. So layer ones built these scalable blockchains, but the bridges between them were not secure. The layer twos built very scalable bridges between the layer one and the layer two, but their blockchains, you know, they're 10 to hundred X more scalable. They're not like a thousand X more scalable. Right. And so both are going to try to solve the other end of that problem. And I think, you know, long, long run, you end up with, with systems that, are actually pretty similar. So I'm excited about layer twos. Um, we're also very excited about, you know, anything on the early stage token side, whether that's like DeFi stuff, gaming stuff, NFT stuff. Um, I think it's just an area of the market where you didn't have as many um, traditional VCs investing. And so um, I, I think like valuations there are, are a bit more attractive versus the equity rounds haven't really come down in price enough yet for for us to want to like aggressively deploy there. I mean, obviously we're still doing investments and stuff that we think like have really high upside and are really awesome founders. Um, but I think like all else equal, you know, if I had like, you know, two teams that are exactly the same and, and I had a limited amount of capital, you know, I'd, I'd, and I could only have enough capital bet one on one team, you know, I'd, I'd pick the one that was an early stage token just on a relative basis from like a macro kind of portfolio allocation standpoint right now. Um, yeah, that's sort of what, what we're excited about, I would say. Just, just out of interest, I mean, is there any token, maybe in your book or like any project that you can think of that actually managed to decouple from the bear market, crypto winter, whatever you want to call it? I mean, you know, the move lower in, in 2022. I mean, is there anything that's up and, you know, in, in, in the greens? There probably is. Um, I, I don't <laughs> I don't know if, it, if there is, but I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, something out of the 20,000 uh, assets in this space. But um yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, not sure what asset it is. Yeah. So probably not in your book. I mean, you know, everybody I speak to, everybody's hurting. Every everyone's portfolio is on fire, and you know, all these coins and tokens are down, and Nasdaq's down, and the dollar is up, and energy's up, and you know, every everybody's hurting. Yields are up. So, I mean, um, you know, with with that said, it it kind of like it feels like you know, at some point we're we're all due a little bit of a of a, uh, you know, move to the top side and move higher and, you know, to, to get some of that pressure off and it, it would help everyone. I mean, I'm not sure if we've seen the lows yet, to be quite honest. This is just, uh, you know, my personal opinion. I, I wouldn't be incredibly surprised to see Bitcoin, you know, go below 15K and to see, you know, ETH go below 1,000 or, you know, below 750, 700, something like that. Maybe that is the flush out then um, and then we can move higher. So I'm, I I don't think we're kind of like out of the risk zone where we're, you know, having a, a smooth glide path to the upside from here. But let's see. What, what's your view? 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of it depends on um, a lot of it depends on the macro environment, which which is something that like you know I, I've been in crypto I guess eleven years now, and and you know macro is never relevant, right? Like it it, it didn't matter. Crypto was so small, and and macro is also like you know a, a generally happy place for that eleven year period. Um, but now it's it's become a huge a huge part of it, and um, you know my my view is I think a lot of like you know, is the worst over? Is it going to get a lot worse? Depends on like what happens on on the inflation side of things, right? Like you have a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's you know the seventies V 2 And my my personal view is, I don't I don't like you know the Fed's going to make that mistake again. They seem to be pretty aggressive about hiking, but um, so th- so there's like that question mark, and then um, you know, one other element I think is if you look at like valuations, um they have come down a lot, like even on the public equity side in terms of earnings multiples. Um, they weren't as extended as they were in, in 2000. Um, you know, a lot of people say it's, it's going to be like exactly like 2000 again. I don't, don't think it's going to be like 2000. I think it's, you know, definitely already is and, and continue to be worse than 2018. Um, but, you know, not, not as bad as 2000 or the seventies is, is sort of my read. Um, and, you know, I think, I think like, you know, tech broadly, including crypto, it's definitely gotten way oversold relative to other stuff. Um, you know, everyone seems to be kind of piling into the to the energy trade right now. Um, you know, if if you did that a year ago, uh, like Buffett did, you know, it's very very smart. Um, you know, doing it now, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't feel like it has um, you know super contacts upside. It's kind of become a consensus trade. But to your point, you know, I'm also not not confident that we've bottomed yet. You know, but I think we're um, it really depends on the liquidations thing. Like there's about 20 billion in open interest in, in futures and perpetuals and stuff right now. And the question mark is like, where are those people's liquidation prices? Right. Um, like if, if their leverage is such that their liquidation price is like 10 K, like, I don't think we get there. If it's like, you know, 17,400 or something, you know, maybe, maybe we do and that causes a cascade and then we have a bottom and then it kind of bounces back fairly quick. And then it's kind of slow, kind of like, range bound kind of grindy period over the next year or two. I could see that happening, but um, it's just hard to know like where the liquidation price is, you know, um, that'd be great if, 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 you know, that, that was able to, you know, if we, if we knew that, but uh, we don't. And so I think that's the kind of defines the question of like, do we have this cascade or not? And I don't know. I, I agree. I mean, look with, within the next two years, there's going to be another having in Bitcoin. I mean, you know, to, to just stay where we are for the next two years, I guess that's that's rather unlikely. I mean, if, if any of the historical you know fact patterns that we've seen around halvings and you know these type of things um, have any meaning, then uh, it you know should start to move. So let's see. I guess we'll uh, we're we're here to to watch it, to observe it, to comment on it. Um, Joey, thank you so much for coming on. That was real fun. Uh, I enjoy that. Thank you for your perspective on the market and and all the background info you gave us. Um, I hope we can do this another time. Yeah, me too. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. 
Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.